We'll come to a time now in our service. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Psalm 77? 77, it's on page 416 in this Brown Pew Bible, if you're using that. And when you found that, would you stand with me, and I'll read this passage together. As we finish out today our summer psalm series, psalmist writes this. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord at night. I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused or meditated, and my spirit inquired, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word. We need him. So let's ask him to come and speak to us now. Spirit of God, we ask you to continue to speak now through your word as we come to this this psalm written so long ago, but that we believe is written and inspired by your spirit and then written down by men. And so we trust that this is a living word. This is a word that has something to say to us today. I don't know what it is for each one of us, and yet you say when you send out your word, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And I'm praying that For each person you've drawn here today, that you would accomplish the purpose you wanted to accomplish in each one of them, just as you have accomplished it in me this past week. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I've highlighted this uh, a number of times in the past, I know, but uh, uh, legal dramas, courtroom Dramas continue to be one of the personal favorites for my wife and I. These are just things we often go to when you've got to make a choice of what to watch. That's, that's where we're headed. So 
Back in the day, I don't know how many of you remember when Blockbuster was a thing. Uh, um, Blockbuster, and we actually had time in our lives, we would head out, grab some, you know, Pacino, some Denzel, McConaughey, Jimmy Stewart, whatever, grab one of these films, Slurpee's on the way home, pop some popcorn, settle in, and we're like locked in, like just love it, love the, the story of it, the puzzle, how is it going to, and the, and the intensity of the, it just was, I, I love it, and I still love it to this day. Um, I, I know it's probably way less glamorous than what you see in the movies, but I still think that a trial lawyer, that's something I totally could see myself have been doing if God hadn't called me to be a pastor. I, I, it's just a different route. Uh, this, I love what I'm doing, but uh, I think that would have been cool. If you've seen these kinds of movies, or maybe you're pursuing a career in law yourself, uh, you have very likely heard of this idea of reasonable doubt before. Reasonable doubt, which... One author defined this way, it's doubt based upon reason and common sense after careful and impartial consideration of all the evidence received in a trial, the kind of doubt that would make a reasonable person hesitate to act. The point is that in a criminal case that's brought before a jury, if there is reasonable doubt created in the minds of the jurors that the accused actually committed the crime they're on trial for, they are to hand down a not guilty verdict. And so in order to convict someone, a prosecutor must be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused is, in fact, guilty. And they do that by presenting proof of such convincing character that a reasonable person would not hesitate to rely and act upon it. So we are concluding this teaching series today through the book of Psalms entitled, Every Last Key We've been looking at the transforming reality revealed to us in the Psalms that the God who made us and formed us wants to speak new life into every last part of us. Everything, not just the parts of us that we see as presentable. He wants all of it. But if you were to picture your life as a house, last time you got to hear me say this, God wants to be given the key to every last room. And the last key that we're going to look at bringing to God this morning is doubt. Bringing God your doubt, which while it might not be as difficult as bringing God something like your anger, which we looked at last Sunday, is probably not too far behind as far as things that we don't usually think about as something that God wants us to bring to Him. In fact, we just don't usually think of it that way. And so um, that's why we want to look at it this morning. It's one of those things on the list of, I don't know, can we bring that to God? And I think that's especially true If you grew up in the church, because that's a place where the focus is often on having faith, right? Where it's about putting our trust in God. That's that's what we generally talk about here. And, and, you know, we we read verses all the time, like Hebrews 11, 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever comes to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Or James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And as a result, because we've, I believe, wrongly understood passages like these and others, and, and like what it's actually trying to teach us about doubt... We've come to believe that doubt is something we can't bring to God. And because of that, 
I believe the church today is, is very often filled with people who have all kinds of doubts. We have all kinds of doubts, but there's something that we feel like they need to be kept secret. Just keep it to yourself. Uh, just, just kind of put it out of your mind. Get over it. Uh, whatever it is, that, that there's, there's no place, we believe, in the life of somebody who's following God for questions and doubts anymore. We've, we've come to believe this, and, and it's not everything, no. But I believe that this is at least one reason why we see people abandoning their faith altogether and leaving the church. Because if you, and if you've tried this before, you know it already. Ignoring your doubts, even believing that you're not supposed to have them, doesn't make them disappear. That's about as effective as making doubts disappear as mowing over dandelions on your lawn makes them disappear. It, it doesn't. And yet, even just looking at, the, let's say, the New Testament witness alone, where there's all kinds of people throughout there that came to Jesus with all kinds of questions, all kinds of doubts. They came to him all the time. His own disciples, Nicodemus, woman at the well, the guy with the demon-possessed son, and Mark 9, help my unbelief. All these people came to Jesus with their doubts, and they were received gladly, graciously, and all left with their faith changed and restored because of it. When you look at this passage today in Psalm 77, you see just the same the psalmist, who we're told is this man named Asaph, who was one of the temple musicians, brings his doubt to God in the midst of his distress, and he finds, rather than rejection, he finds restoration for his faltering faith. And, and what I'm saying is that if the circumstances of your life today have led you to a place where you're questioning God right now, where there's like doubt cast over your face, something that I've experienced numerous times in my own life, and this message is for you today. This is for you. Because ultimately, what we have here in this passage is, is a demonstration of both the process as well as the product of bringing your doubts to God. That's what we see here. And in order to help us track that process, and I pray know that same restored faith in our own lives, if we're experiencing doubt today, I want to look at this passage in just two ways. I want to show you reasonable doubting and then reasoning with your doubt. Reasonable doubting, reasoning with your doubt. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage in Psalm 77? Follow along with me as we learn together about bringing your doubt to God. Okay, so let's look first of all at reasonable doubting. Reasonable doubting, and I want to look at this first because... I really want to challenge this idea that to believe in God, to follow Him faithfully, means we're never going to have any questions or doubts anymore. I really want to challenge this idea because far too many people, I think, have been deceived by believing this, and even, even more than logically not standing up, I don't think it stands up biblically either. Uh, one case in point, having to be, like having to be, that scene at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, when the resurrected Jesus standing right there in front of his disciples. He's here. These guys have watched Jesus die, seen him crucified, buried, put in a tomb. He's standing here now, raising up into heaven. And yet in spite of all of that stuff, Matthew writes this, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I'm just like, what? A dead guy is standing here 
talking to you. You could touch him. He's saying, give me something to eat. He's raising up into the sky. And people are standing there like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Really, though? Is he, is he really? I, I, I can't understand the reaction. I don't get it. But there, it's just plainly there for us. Some doubted still in spite of all that. And honestly, if you're at all like me, when you look at the first verses of this psalm, you have a similar reaction. Because when you look at verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, you, you see something of what you'd expect to see in a psalm. A guy coming to God in prayer, crying out in the midst of his distress. But what you don't expect to see is what we read in the second half of verse 2. Look with me there. When the psalmist tells us, he went to God in prayer, stretched out untiring hands, but still came away not feeling comforted. We're like, huh? But that, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like the Bible. What do you mean he wasn't comforted? Now, yes, it says his soul refused to be comforted, and that's a whole different message about how we can very often foolishly and pridefully reject, like push away the very help that God's trying to give us, very often just because we think we know better than he does, or we're clinging on to these things. That's, that's another message for another time. But if you look at verse 3, Equally, equally surprising to us, as he writes, I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. We, just, we don't understand these reactions, these comparisons he's making. This doesn't sound like the Bible. What do you mean you went to God and weren't comforted? You thought about him and you groaned? And I don't think it's, we don't really understand fully what's actually going on until we get to verse 5 and 6, where we see the psalmist say this. He says, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. And what he's saying there ultimately is that he's become despondent. He's become disillusioned as he compares these present difficult circumstances in his experience of God with a previous experience of God's favor, of God's closeness. Like, if I can just put this in modern, like, present-day terms, you know what he's doing? He's just, like, thinking back on the good old days, thinking about the good times, times like, you know, in church we talk about the mountaintop experiences, life is good, things are going well, work, family, uh, uh, um, everything seems to be going well, blessings flowing down, I'm, I'm in church, I'm crying when I worship, like, everything seems to be going awesome, and he's comparing this rich experience of the past with this present dry one. And he's saying, what, what, what gives? What? I, haven't, I haven't stopped believing in you. Haven't stopped praying to you. Haven't stopped anything. Why is all this hard stuff happening now? Anybody else felt like that before when you're faithfully, you're trying to follow God and something incredibly hard still falls on your lap? Why is this happening to me? Where is this hard stuff. I'm, I'm following. I'm praying to you. And as the questions in the next verses clearly reveal for the psalmist, the whole experience has just put him into a bit of a free fall. And he's experiencing doubt. And this is now where the whole discussion we began with about court trials and reasonable doubt comes back to play because in a very real sense, what the psalmist is describing for us here is a situation where there was reasonable doubt in his heart and mind up until now against the claim that God could not be trusted. There was reasonable doubt for him. The accusation that Satan has been presenting before the court of all of our hearts since the garden. God can't be trusted. For him, there was reasonable doubt. But now, 
in light of all this difficulty and distress that he's experiencing, the, the jury in this faith trial now feels like it's being swayed towards a, a guilty charge. As the evidence for him now feels like it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Maybe God can't be trusted. So again, this, this leads into this series of kind of rapid-fire questions that he brings to God. He lifts to him in the midst of his doubt, saying this. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And as you think about what this means to bring your own doubts to God, I think at the very least, what we have here, very first, the very first thing to see is that we have biblical evidence of the fact that you can do it. You can bring your doubts to God. That's what we see the psalmist doing. He lifts up these doubting questions to him. And I don't, I'm not saying this is necessarily what the editor of the book of Psalms had in mind when he did this, but I find it pretty reassuring to look at the next six Psalms following this one and see that they're all written by the same guy, which means, at the very least, he's saying, hey, don't worry, he lived. He lived. He didn't bring doubts to God, and God was like, you don't bring doubts to me. Like, he's still writing. It's still Psalms coming, so that's a good sign. We can bring our doubts to God. We can do it. Secondly, the second thing we, we see shown to us is that it's normal to experience feelings of doubt. It's, it's normal to experience questions when we go through difficult, confusing circumstances in life. We're not God. We are finite creatures. We can't see what he sees. It's, it's, it's natural to have these questions of what's going on. Why is this happening? That's why I called this point reasonable doubting because what we see in this psalm as well as numerous other passages in the Bible is that when the, when the rug gets pulled out from under your feet, when, when God permits a season of trial for you or leads you through a valley as dark as the shadow of death, it's entirely reasonable to experience questions. It's entirely reasonable to experience doubts in the midst of that. As pastor and author Tim Keller says so well, Doubts come when your personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. Now, maybe through years of learning and, and trusting, you've come to the place in your life where when you experience trials and difficulties, uh, you, you are able to respond with more of a trusting response. That's, that's, that's possible too. Maybe just through your, your faith has been strengthened as you've trusted in God in these times, and you're able to respond that way. And that's great, and, and praise God for that. But I think what we're seeing here in this psalm is that one of the very worst things that you can do, if, if that's not where you're at yet, and you are experiencing questions and feelings of doubts, one of the worst things you can do is pretend that you're not experiencing them. To just give people this kind of like, no, no, it's fine. Just trust in the Lord here. If the, if you're not, not to mention the fact, I mean, that, that might fool the people around you, sure, but think about it. This is something that, that's, that's just like mowing over the dandelions. They haven't gone away, and you pretending like they're gone doesn't get rid of them. Not to mention the fact, um, it's God. God sees past every one of your facades, every mask you put on. He already knows you're feeling doubt. So what possible good would come from pretending you don't have it with him. He sees it. He knows what's true in your heart. 
last thing I want to highlight is the way this psalm shows us the great benefit. We already see the great benefit that comes by bringing our questions and feelings of doubt to God. Because maybe it's just me, but as I read the psalmist, as he pours out these doubting questions to God, as he lifts them up to him, there's this, there's this palpable sense of self-contradiction that begins to emerge as he brings the questions to God. There's, there's holes in the case that begin to appear that seem to change the tone of the psalmist's questions by the time he gets to the end of them in verse 9. For he questions, as he questions his experience of God, he compares it against what he knows of the character of God. You notice that's how he brings the question, and as he does that, all of a sudden the, the force of his questions begins to weaken. Can the God who is compassionate withhold compassion, close his fist tightly around compassion? Does the God who is merciful forget to be merciful? Does God forget? Can the God whose love is unfailing ever truly fail to love those who are his own? See what I mean? The, the, the questions contradict themselves even as he prays them, even as he lifts the doubts to God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the questions are suggested by fear, but they're also the cure to fear. Keller again says it this way, the psalmist's questions about unfailing love begin to suggest their own answers. Questions asked honestly in the face of God's holiness always lead back to trust in Him. And I believe that you, too, can be led back to this very same trust in God yourself. If you'll take your questions and doubts and present them to God, bring them to Him honestly, bring them to Him with an openness to listen and to be instructed, not, not with a kind of, I've already settled the case that you can't be trusted. Bring them to Him with the honest, show me, help me understand. I don't, I don't see what you're doing here. This feels wrong. This doesn't feel like you. But I know, the, I know your character. This isn't like you. Help me understand. When you can do that, I believe we can be led back to the very same place of faith and have it restored again when we come that way to him. And that very same leading back to trust is exactly what the psalmist describes of his own experience in the remaining verses of this psalm. So let's look lastly now at reasoning with our doubt. Reasoning with our doubt. So what we see demonstrated now in this psalm is that once the force of his questioning doubt has been sufficiently slowed and weakened as he comes to see the self-contradictory nature of the questions he's bringing to God, he's now able to experience honestly, uh, he, he's able to view his experience from a different perspective. He's able to see it and look at it from a different way. And where you see that turning point taking place is in verse 10. Look with me there. The psalmist now writes, Then I thought... To this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. A number of things we could say about that already, but what I want to highlight and focus us on, particularly in the moment, is that word appeal. I will appeal to this. He says again, if you watch courtroom dramas, you, you study law, you know that appeal is also very much a part of the legal process. Um, uh, an appeal according to the Provincial Court of British Columbia is this. The process for correcting an error. 
made by a judge or a judicial justice overturning a provincial court decision or obtaining a new trial by appealing, retrying a case in a higher court. That's what it means to appeal in a legal setting. Uh, once again, Tim Keller about Psalm 77 puts it this way. Lawyers appeal a case when they hope for a different conclusion from the one they received in a lower court. The psalmist is here arguing against his own heart, which has ruled that things were hopeless. And that higher court that he's now appealing to is this years of the right hand of the Most High, which is simply a, a general reference for the works of power and majesty that God has already displayed in the past. That's what he's appealing to. Before we even get to what those are, it's worthwhile to just pause for a second and just consider the incredible patience of God displayed here. As he just condescends to wait for the psalmist, and by extension for you and I, to try this case against him in the lower court of his heart before arriving at the faith-building witness of God's works of power and might in the appeal process. He lets him process through it. He gives him the time. He gives him the space. He says, you need to process through. You need to bring these questions and see that they don't make sense. Yeah, bring them to me. He's so patient. I, I, think, I think we're so quick when people express doubts. We want to hurry them to trust in God. Oh, no, no, don't say that. No, no, you can trust God. It's okay. Listen to this verse. And I think God is so much more, he's so much more willing to give space and time to process through these things. So I find that to be something incredibly hopeful to see because I don't know about you, but I'm someone who requires a great deal of patience when I'm trying to learn something. This just shows us he's patient with us. He's willing to let us process through our doubts because he's so confident that we'll come to see he is trustworthy in the end. Okay, coming back to the acts of power now. The first acts to which the psalmist appeals, you see in verses 11 through 14, as he chooses to intentionally refocus the remembrance uh, from the good old days to these mighty deeds, these miraculous works of God that are all characterized by his holy perfection. He's choosing intention. I'm going to focus on these things now. But as you keep reading, there, there's one mighty act in particular that the psalmist intentionally chooses to focus on, which you see introduced in verse 15. Look with me there. He says, With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Now when was it that the descendants of Jacob and Joseph needed to be rescued by God's mighty arm? When did that happen? Huh? What? Egypt, thank you. The Exodus, right? That's when, when, when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, which we have recorded for us in the book of Exodus. Now, we don't have time to go through that entire narrative. Uh, we preached a series a number of years ago through first 15 chapters of Exodus. It's there online. You can take time if you want to go through it all. We're not going to do that right now, but just very quickly. The closing chapters of Genesis, which transition into Exodus, uh, talk about one particular son of Jacob named Joseph. Uh, this son who was left for dead and then sold into slavery by his own brothers, only to rise to power under God's mighty hand and come to be the, the governor in Egypt, second in power only to Pharaoh. And when an extended seven-year famine strikes the entire land, Joseph is able to rescue his family 
by bringing them to live with him in Egypt. And so begins the saga now of God's people in Egypt, recorded for us in the book of Exodus. And after hundreds of years of, of enslavement and oppression under new pharaohs who didn't know Joseph, God sends Moses and Aaron to lead his people out of Egypt to the land promised to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, years before, culminating in one last final act of judgment, final act of God's might and power, the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea, which the psalmist now powerfully and poetically recounts in these closing verses, 16 through 20. Let's, let's read these verses and then just talk quickly uh, about uh, what this mighty act in particular has to do with bringing God our doubts. He says, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, why does the psalmist choose to focus on this mighty act in particular? Well, if you know the circumstances of the Red Sea crossing, you know it was a situation that was ordained by God, but that also looked hopeless. It looked to the people in that moment like God had completely abandoned them, hung them out to dry as they stood in front of an impossible body of water on one side with the entire Egyptian army barreling down on them on the other. It looked like God had failed them. That's exactly what they felt. And that's the reason they cried out to Moses the way they did because it looked like God has totally left us here. He's left us here to die. The intended implication for the psalmist as well as for you and me today, obviously being if God's love and faithfulness, if God's mercy and ability to rescue was still undeniably present in, in this circumstances that looked hopeless, even though they couldn't see God, if he was still very present, still totally faithful to them, then maybe, just maybe, Maybe he can be trusted in these impossible circumstances that I'm facing that are leading me to doubt as well. Which demonstrates the true power of memory in the midst of trials and tragedies of life that tempt us to doubt God. For what made all the difference for the psalmist here and what will make all the difference for you as well is that along with contrasting our questions of God with what we know of his character, we can also contrast the seeming hopelessness and impossibility of our circumstances with the demonstrated power, with the demonstrated ability of God to deliver time and time again in the past. This is what it means to be reasoning with your doubts. This is how you reason with them. You say to your doubts, if God was in complete control, more than able to deliver his people from circumstances that seemed impossible to them, then I can also trust him now, despite evidence before me that's leading me to doubt. He was able to deliver them. It looked like he'd let them down, but he hadn't. Maybe I can trust him here, too. Maybe my doubt isn't justified. As I've said many times before, 
Jesus shouldn't have to start at zero every time a new crisis is presented to us. And what Psalm 77 is clearly showing us that he doesn't need to because he's left us with countless witnesses of his power to deliver that we can choose to intentionally remember if we'll only look beyond the, the good old days to see the evidence found again and again in his word as well as in our lives of his ability to deliver in the past when we thought it was hopeless. We've got countless evidences to point to to say this yeah, this looks hopeless, but yes, yeah, so did that. Maybe I can trust him here as well. I don't know how many of you have read uh, John Bunyan's classic allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress. If you're a member, you should have because I gave you a copy of it. But <laughs> if you have, you might remember that scene from that story where Christian is kind of the main character in the story and his traveling companion, hopeful, they divert off the path, off the king's highway it's called, and as a result, they end up battered and imprisoned in Doubting Castle, which is owned and ruled over by the giant despair. And when the pair have been beaten, bludgeoned, deprived for so many days that they're at the place of despairing, even of their own lives... Christian has a revelation one day to which his heart gladly appeals for hope, saying, Oh, what a fool I am, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that, I, that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And trying the key in the door, he finds each gate to open easily to him freeing him and his friend last from their dungeon, bringing them safely back onto the king's highway. Now, I think it's only fair to say at a point like this, when it comes to, whether we're, whether we're talking about Christian and Pilgrim's Progress or the psalmist here, they, they were able to reason with their doubts so, uh, so effectively because they actually knew the character of God. They actually knew the promises of God so well. And so they had something to appeal to. If you're not building into your relationship with God daily, if the only time a Bible gets open in front of you is when we sit here on Sunday morning, if the only time spent in prayer is the 10 seconds before you eat, God, thanks for the food, bless this food. If that's the only investment in your relationship with God, you, there, you don't have a basis with which to appeal to. That's not reasonable doubting. That's, that's unreasonable doubting because you barely know the God to whom you're appealing. These guys were able to so effectively appeal to God's character because they knew what he's like. They'd read and seen again and again God's ability to deliver impossible circumstances. They knew it, and so they had a basis with which to appeal. So you can't just try this today or tomorrow and be like, oh, it's not working. If you don't know the God to whom you're appealing, you need to know what he's like. And he's revealed it to us again and again in his word. That's how we can do this effectively. But the point of what I'm trying to say here today and what we're seeing in Psalm 77 is even if you know it, even if you know what God's like, even if you know his many acts of power in the past, we can still 
experience times of questioning and doubt. We can still, it can still come. And again, so that's why we've been saying, if those things come, if you feel those questionings, why is this happening to me? You can bring those to God. Don't deny them. Don't pretend that you don't feel them. That's just mowing over the dandelions. They're not going to go away. You'll remain imprisoned in your doubts. And, and maybe even bringing your doubts to others. Unless they're pointing you to the God who can be trusted, they're just going to continue to leave you without answers, without freedom. It's only in bringing your questions and doubts to God that you have hope for both consolation as well as liberation. As the promise of his faithful, loving, compassionate character, as well as the testimony of his power to deliver from any circumstance, opens the lock every time to the gate in Doubting Castle. If only we'll make use of it. And it's one of those things where the more you use it, the more quickly and effectively we get to use it because we become trained in using it. And for the believer in Jesus here this morning, one of the best news that we have of all is that while the promise of the Exodus, this great act of power, provided restored faith in the midst of doubt for the psalmist, for us this morning, we have an even greater miracle to appeal to for all time, to which the exodus in Egypt was only pointing ahead to, the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Keller writes, Jesus accomplished the greatest exodus of all, liberating us not just from social political bondage, but from sin and death. And I love this. His death on the cross is a model for us for how God often works his gracious, gracious purposes out through what looks like defeat. We know from the testimony of the scriptures when Jesus was arrested in the garden, when his disciples and followers saw him beaten and then crucified and laid in a tomb, just as he said they would, they fell away. They felt doubt. They couldn't understand. This looks like Jesus has lost, and yet it was his act of greatest victory. That's the great exodus Jesus brought about in his death and resurrection, which we can always point back to as an evidence. This might look like defeat right now, but I don't need to give in or remain imprisoned in doubt because if that looked like failure and it was actually victory, this can too. The incredible truth revealed to us in the Psalms is that the God who made you and formed you wants to speak new life into every last part of you. There's no part of you or your life experience that you cannot bring to him. From your trust to doubts that we saw today, from your feelings of envy to your thanksgiving, your desire for joy, to your anger, to your fears, your anxieties, all of it, God's desire is that you'd bring him the key to every last one of those rooms. And my prayer for you is, if you've taken nothing else out of this series, is that you'd see that you can do that with all of these things. You can bring them all to him, whatever it looks like, however presentable you think it is, you can bring every single one of these things to him. Because listen, in the end, 
It's not about your being presentable to God when you come into his presence. It's about the way God brings renewal and restoration to every last part of us and every last part of your life by his presence there. Amen.